0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Innovating Church podcast, the podcast of Church Innovations. Today with me is Casey Sugnan and Pat Kiefert, and we our guest today is Todd Bolsinger, who has a book coming out, Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change, from InterVarsity Press, and it'll be available to everyone, and Where Books Are Sold... Um, on and around November 10th. Welcome, Todd. Hi,
1: Rachel. Nice to be with you again.
0: And um, Patrick, will you please pray us in to our time?
2: Gracious God, we know um, how precious the movement of your spirit is, and we seek that now that we might uh, gain insight and wisdom in our conversation about uh, resilience and adaptive leadership in this conversation with God. We ask this in Jesus name, Amen.
0: Amen. So Todd, this is uh, a second book um, in the, you had um, your previous book, Leadership for a Time of Pandemic. So this comes right kind of right after that, book two in that. Um, and and you begin right away talking about adaptive leadership and what it means to be a resilient leader, but you also talk about sabotage. And so might you uh, uh, expand a little bit on that and talk about that sort of as the foundation for your um, understanding of a tempered resilient leader?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. So um, in 2015, um, when uh, Canoeing the Mountains was published, it took me literally around the country and did three other countries uh, talking to people about the idea of adaptive change. How do you lead into uncharted territory? How do you lead when you're not an expert and you have to learn as you go and you are continually uh, in a position where people have to face loss in order to keep moving forward? And that... Framework um, resonated with a lot of leaders, so I got to speak to a lot of folks. But what I found was, in like in an any book, they had the parts of the book they wanted me to speak on. You know, speak on this part, speak on that part, speak speak on this part. Everybody wanted me to speak about sabotage. That became this the other subject all the way along the way, because one of the premises that comes out in Canoeing the Mountains is uh, Edwin Friedman's idea that you have not uh, succeeded in a change until after you've made the change and then survived the resultant sabotage, that the way systems bring change is they make a change, then they regret the change and resist the change. They try to sabotage the change to make the change go back. And the leader has to not only make a change, but has to actually take the people through what is going to become um, he says, 100% of the time, an experience of sabotage. And so um, that became the the big question. That became the big co- topic of conversation. And what I found really is it became the topic of conversation for what I call the dinner gathering after the gathering. So whoever invited me to come speak, you know, the district superintendent, the bishop, the executive presbyter, the director of t- training, would usually take me out for a meal. And then at the end of the day, they would go, thank you so much for being here. That was really helpful. My only problem is I'm not sure anybody here can do that. And what I first thought is they were telling me, oh, I did do a good job teaching people and training them how to do adaptive leadership. And then they said, no, 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 it's not that at all. That was great. We just don't know if we have anybody who can actually do this. They can survive it. They have the, they have the stomach for this. And then one of the pastors I'm coaching said to me, uh, Todd, I'm pretty sure I can learn to lead adaptive change. I don't know if I can survive it. And so that sent me on the path of thinking through, how do you create the resilience to deal with resistance? That's the real rub for most leaders is not the external challenge we're facing out there in the world. It's the internal resistance we face inside our congregations, our institutions, our organizations, after we have said we want to join together and face that external challenge in the world it's then the people shrink back um and the leader is it's the most soul-sucking part of the, for for leaders and that's what i wanted to be able to speak to is the resilience to face, face that resistance
0: cuz you rightly talk about um sabotage you say that acts of sabotage are not bad things that evil people do acts of sabotage are human things that anxious people do yeah, yeah. and i think um Gosh, that just puts it in a different frame um, for leaders because it can feel like the world is against you. Um, And when you realize that really, no, this is the anxiety in the system that's that's causing the sabotage. Um,
1: When you start realizing that anxious people do what anxious people do, right? They want to run home. And um, I always say that you know. Remember that the root word for familiar and the word for family are the same. And when you are in unfamiliar territory, you feel like you're homeless. And when you feel homeless and disoriented and alone and lost, you will run home, even if you're running home to a dysfunctional family, even if you're. And so we see this over and over and over again in the scriptures. We see it all the way through the 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 early days, the early stories of the Exodus. When I mean every single time the people of god hit an obstacle they started thinking maybe slavery wasn't so bad they killed our children but at least we had leeks and onions for lunch oh my gosh you know maybe maybe we instead of dying in the wilderness we should just go back and be slaves and it was and moses had to walk them through that over and over and over again in order to de- develop the resilience to continue on in the journey and ultimately you know it's it's why it took a generation
0: right right um, you also talk about, um, and you had kind of briefly brought these up, these topics up in your previous book, but you fleshed them out more, but the, the notion of failure of nerve and failure of heart. Yeah. Um, do you want to say a little bit about those?
1: So failure of nerve is Ed Friedman's term, and it's a great term. He says it's basically what happens to leaders when they hit the resistance of their people and their people begin to turn on them. Then they begin to rationalize, like letting go of the mission and colluding with the group that wants to go back. So you have a failure of nerve because at this moment, what you say is, you know what? We won't make the, this. Let's not make this so difficult. Let's, this We doesn't have to be so painful. It doesn't have to be so hard. Let's go back. And that failure of nerve often is what stops change. It's, it's why systems will rise up to change against creative leaders and will sabotage creative leaders, because if we can just get them to, to identify with how much uncomfortable this is for us, we'll all go back. A failure of heart is the other side. It's when you have stood firm against a failure of nerve, what happens to leaders very often is they now begin to get cynical and brittle and angry at the people that they are called to actually lead and love and care for. And so uh, in Exodus 16, we see uh, Moses survive a failure of nerve event when they want to go back to Egypt. But by Numbers 11, when they are grumbling about the food one more time after God has fed them with manna and sustained them, he literally says to God, if you want me to stay with these people, kill me now. Like, just take me out. And what you realize is many of us as leaders have that moment. It may not be kill me now. It might be, if, you really, if this is really the only group you're going to let me pastor, I'll sell real estate. I'll sell, I'll sell insurance. I'll, I'll, I'll go do something else. Um, the number of people who I coach who will come to me and say, you know what, I'm so, so tired of trying to lead like this. Is there any way that I could just, I don't know, do your PowerPoints for you or something? Like, like they, they get to the place where they lose their heart for their people and their heart for the mission. And to develop resilience, you have to develop um, the strength to sustain a failure of nerve and the tempering to sustain a failure of heart, the flexibility, the agility. Um, you can't become be soft and you can't become brittle. And that's why the book is called Tempered Resilience.
3: Now, Todd, um, I'm going to assume that you had been working on this book for quite some time. Um, have you noticed uh, in your own experience or uh, in talking with uh, other uh, Christian leaders that perhaps these ideas of uh, sabotage or failure of nerve or heart, um, are they magnified during a pandemic? Is that, That's a leading question because as you
1: were talking, I'm thinking, wow, this is the last seven months. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Casey. So so I've often said this before, but it just makes so much sense if you think about it. So on, on March 13th, Friday the 13th, was the last day that I spoke to a big group of people in person. That was the last time, day that I did. I flew home by March 15th. Every church I knew had gone online because of the pandemic. I had 15 speaking engagements canceled in the next week. Just gone, right? Everything was disrupted. I had, I had pastors I coach literally say to me stuff like, I just hope this is over soon so we don't have to cancel Easter. I couldn't imagine standing in front of the congregation and telling them that we're not going to gather in person on Easter. Seven months later, people look back at that and say, that was the easiest decision we ever made. I mean, for crying out loud, the whole place went, of course not. Of course we shouldn't gather on Easter. I don't care what anybody says. No, we're staying home. Even if you did open uh, on Easter, we would stay home. Today 7 months later every church i know is completely fractured by these questions because some want to gather some don't some think that if you wear a mask it's a political act some think that it's an act, that it's an act that demonstrates a lack of faith others i mean it's like it's just completely shattered in so many congregations the the pandemic and the economic recession and the social injustice uprisings that we have seen and protests we have seen Um, are just shattering our capacity to stay together. And what ends up happening is the pastor stands right in the middle of it, trying to hold people together to remind them that our call is to love God and love our neighbor. And that that call gets lost in the anxiety of it. And so this is so that so the pandemic and everything we've experienced has just brought to the surface what I call the underlying conditions. You know, the like the underlying conditions that put us at risk for COVID. We have these underlying conditions that have been present in the life of the church that now are evident and, and threatening us.
3: So we've talked about um quite a few of the uh negative possibilities uh in times of high anxiety um and division uh so let's move to how uh can leaders intentionally uh shoot for being a tempered leader or um if you want to just tell us what are the markers of a tempered leader um that hopefully are not the things that we've talked about to open the
1: podcast yeah, yeah. So, so one of the first parts about recognizing this. So, the the metaphor throughout the book, temporary resilience, is it's a blacksmithing metaphor, is what it is. Um, it, I there is an urban blacksmithing community in Los Angeles, California. It's in a neighborhood that probably hasn't had a horse there in a hundred years. But there is a group of artisan blacksmiths who will teach you how to blacksmith. And I and I actually took a class, a couple of classes from them. And when I was taking my blacksmithing class, one of the things that I learned was the transformation of steel into a tool is a process that that goes through many, many steps. And a number of those steps feel almost violent. You heat it to the place of, it, of steel becoming liquid. You place it on an anvil that can hold it in that state. You pound on it with hammers that adds both stress and shaping to the steel. You heat it and hold it and hammer it and heat it and hold it and hammer it. You file it, you grind it, you heat it, you hold it, you hammer it, and then you cool it. And that rhythm, that process, turns raw steel, raw material, into a tempered tool. And tempered is really important. A tempered tool is a tool that has been worked in such a way that it has flexibility in it. It's not just harder. It's actually more flexible also. And so what you're talking about is not creating a sledgehammer, but a chisel. And where that, that language of a chisel for me came was by um, reading again uh, Martin Luther King's famous speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, the um, um, "I have a dream" speech. And in that section, which most of us know was extemporaneous, he, he threw it in because Mahalia Jackson yelled at him, "Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream." He literally says, "With this faith," he's just referred to Isaiah chapter 40, "With this faith." we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And literally, I think of tempered resilience as the capacity to hew. Not to destroy, not to break through, not to explode, but to hew. Hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And in that beautiful act of parallelism, we see that hewing is transforming. And that's what tempered resilience does. It transforms the mountain of despair, the anxiety-filled despair, the anxious-prone resistance and despair into something that can be a stone that can build something beautiful. And that work is a formative work. And that's why this book is a formation book.
0: Do you mind just kind of briefly sort of outlining that process 'cause you um you do it so well in your book of of what a um a tempered resilient leader looks like sort
1: of yeah, so oh. a, what I say is a tempered resilient leader is a leader whose grounded identity. That's the raw material. You need a grounded identity. We can talk about that. Um, I say that the, the raw material is a leader whose identity is grounded in something other than their success as a leader. So it starts not with how successful you are. It starts with how loved you know yourself to be. So a grounded identity through a process of reflection relationships, and a rule of life, a set of practices, reflections, relationships, and a rule of life in a rhythm of leading and not leading is the way in which a grounded identity becomes a tempered resilient leader. Reflection, relationships, a rule of life in a rhythm of leading and not leading. And, and that's the process. And then I and I connect that process to the process of blacksmithing, to, to, to working, heating, holding, hammering, Hewing and tempering.
2: I think that um, uh, one of the most helpful things about the book, and there are just so many, it's a very good book, is uh, it it shows how. leading and becoming a leader happens by leading, and that it's about practices um, that are sustained over time. And and it's this uh, recognition <laughs> that um, you can read and study about leadership and this can be helpful but that the only way to learn to be a leader is to lead yeah yep. so uh you 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 te- you teach at a at a seminary you know you not only teach you're you're a major uh, uh leader at that seminary um uh, and Seminaries, schools of theology, divinity schools, uh, on the whole, I would have to say, um, presume they can teach uh, without having people actually lead. Now, I will grant you, Fuller Seminary, as a movement seminary, had many of its students, and I suppose still today, many of its students are actually leaders in congregations who are kind of uh, doing study to support that. How would you change, or are you changing, how you form leaders, given what this book says?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Well, you just hit perhaps the most significant change right there, the most significant thing is the acknowledgement that leadership is not formed until you are leading. That you um, that you literally the work of becoming a leader starts when you step into the to the function to the work of a leader, not just taking the title. I know I said it's not it's not just because someone gave you a title and a corner office and heavy furniture. You actually had to take a group of people through an act of transformation to face their mission and purpose in the world. And so because. What's changing in theological education is that our students are changing, that across in almost every seminary, this is becoming more and more the norm, is that you have people who are already in ministry who are saying, we need theological education. The seminaries are now having to acknowledge that, they're, that they are training people in real time, and especially with the growth of online education, you are training people in real time, and that you are needing to ch- train people and, and equip people for life. Like in a training world, in a, in a changing world, we need lifetime formation. We're always taking the tool back to the forge to temper it, to shape it, to um, to, to file it. And because of that, theological education is no longer pre-service work. It's work that happens over a lifetime. And you can only give out so many initials and have people take on so much debt, <laughs> like they just won't do it after a while. So what we're trying to do in most places in theological education is we're acknowledging that, that offering degrees, which is really important, is only one part of our work. And offering scholarship to support that has got to be only one part of our work. The part of our work has got to be the ongoing formation and education of leaders for life. And, and more than just in a continuing education model, in a, in a, in a really robust organization resetting model. And, and for me, especially for the leaders that I work with, getting them to acknowledge this reality is really important because you become a leader right after you succeeded at being some kind of expert. Right? So you were the best youth person in, their, in your church. You were the best preacher, the best care, person of pastoral care. Um, so then they made you the leader. And what you think is, well, I should just go from strength to strength. And the answer is, you go from your place of expertise to now having to be a learner all over again. So the very first attribute of a resilient leader is that they are, they are willing to embrace their vulnerability in self-reflection. And they're willing to learn humility. In an institution, this happens, as you know, the person with the biggest vita gets asked to be the dean. And then all of a sudden, they realize they're no longer the scholar who gets to sit alone and write papers. They've got to actually work with people. And that transforms into a moment where you have to go and let go of your expertise and actually embrace your vulnerability in order to develop the resilience necessary to become a strong and tempered leader.
2: So okay, I'm, so now let's take this to the local congregation. Um, you're, you're talking about lifelong learning yeah. and you've talked about leadership is 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 actually learned in leading. And I presume it's not just for the clergy, but uh, the lay leadership in congregations also need uh, the same sort of resilient uh, temp- tempering. And furthermore, it seems to me you're saying uh, you know uh, you have to get through the sabotage, not just getting the vote to change and getting the I love your story you know you can get you can get everyone to vote for the change, but then comes the the sabotage, which is an essential part of change because people oppose the loss that all change results in so our experience anyway at church innovations is that at a minimum this is a three to five year process in a local church uh in order to uh bring about any significant change of culture well yeah it's as best as i can tell no go ahead
1: no, I'm saying you, you nailed it. The—the the, the Acknowledging that a change process is a long process, that it's a long shaping process for both the leaders and the congregation is one of those things that people just have to, look, have to grieve. Because what most of us want, you know, a congregation gets a new pastor and they hope that we're, everything's going to turn around right now. That, that was our big change. We'll get the new pastor. And very often when I'm when I am uh, consulting with people, a go, uh, church going through a transition of a pastor. And I'll I talk to the pastor. I'll say the biggest problem with your church is they think you're the only thing they need. They think that they hire you. All their problems will go away. So as soon as they don't, they're going to blame you. So this is why you need resilience, because the church doesn't know that it needs to change a lot more than its
2: pastor. So if you were to design, uh, ideally now, a um, a model for accompanying local churches through this kind of change. Um, how long would you want the uh, the contract to be? The commitment. <laughs> that's a good that's a good way to put it. So I have two. I I would say that I would put it in phases.
1: I would say that um, uh the the first phase, like so you become so like I just went through this. I've gone through this with a, recently with one of my clients. He's a really really gifted preacher. I mean profoundly gifted preacher, and the congregation loves him. But when they hired him, he had never had any experience as A senior pastor of a larger church, and so when they asked me to interview him when he was on the way in, I said to them, "Hey, here's what you need to know. He's really, really smart. He's really gifted, but he has no experience as a senior pastor." And they went, "That's okay. That's really okay. We know he'll grow into it." Three years later, they fired. Like I went three years. How fast did you think it would? What, What did you think growth meant? Like, like what did you think it meant? Like, and and I'm thinking, and they they fired him. With a congregation that is going to probably split and splinter because he has done really, really well in a lot of ways and he's made some rookie mistakes and he's grown a lot. And I would say that that if it was a sports team, you're letting the person go right before they're about to break through and all your investment of the last three years of pain is about to go out the window because you can't tolerate how long it takes for people to grow. And a congregation has to do the same thing. So I would say the first phase is you got to know in the first, you know, three to five years, you're doing a lot of just learning together what it means to basically be on a a long journey. So it's it's like the beginning of a marriage, right? And then I would say that somewhere in the three to five year range, you've got to actually take a deep deep breath, look at each other and say, okay, for the next 15 years, we're going to be in a long process together. Because I actually think the kind of adaptive changes we're looking at for the church today in the West is going to take at least two generations. It's going to be all of our work for the rest of our careers and our ministries and all of the people who we are uh, uh, discipling and bringing up. It is it's at least two generations. And to know that we are playing the long game in the history of God's own work and to know that God's okay with that one of the things we learn in the exodus story is that god's really okay for an entire generation to just stay in the wilderness uh, that it's really okay to as far as god's concerned and that it could take us a long time and so resilience is developing the capacity for the long haul it's to it's to have a giant mountain of despair and a very little chisel and to keep working away until you can create stones and for me that image of stones that's the image of first peter let yourself be built right come to him who is a living stone and as living stones let yourselves be built into a dwelling place for god that's a cathedral work is generational work and that's what we're talking about here
0: so i'm curious because one I wanna, of the i want
2: to follow that i oh, sorry
0: yeah
2: please uh, well, I I'm, was, not, I'm, I'm on a, a path here
0: that's okay uh, you go ahead so, Patrick. <laughs>
2: all right three to five years, phase one, and then a commitment to another 15, so two generations. And, um, and I agree with this. This actually is the way Church Innovations does it. But uh, here's the, the sabotage that comes with that. And one of the things that leaves me wondering about the book, The book basically, even though it says it's important to have relationships, et cetera, focuses on individual choice. And this is about the individual leader. And um, and I, I think that's realistic. That's what we have. And it is extremely rare that congregations and that leaders see themselves Involved in a a double generation process of change. Indeed, the sort of language I hear most of the time is uh, you know, if it isn't over, it isn't done in the next six months, it's not worth doing. Uh, That's the common sense of our time. Uh, How do you help people uh, move beyond? that that mindset well one of the ways to think about this is is the most
1: innovative companies in the world like companies like apple for example steve jobs said we're not just building products and and we and they do a whole prototyping process right that that quick fast you know lean prototype process is meant to get learnings that you can he wanted to build an iconic company he literally said i want apple to be here a hundred years from now So I say to churches all the time, you're doing you're doing experiments and you're doing learning in real time in short bursts so that your church will be here faithfully witnessing the gospel 500 years from now. Like, it's okay. I mean, none of Paul's churches exist today. So we're not just about the institution. But the movement that Paul started in the disciples of people taking the gospel message into the world continues. So it's not about the institution, but it's about thinking about the community witness in a location that will last for generations. The irony is you have to do that in real time learning under intensity. So this is one of the skill sets that has to be learned by lots of us is that resilience is your capacity to be in the fire and be shaped today Because you're going to go through a process over and over and over again That's going to create the kind of capacity that can last through many crises And and 2020 and you know the 21st century has been a great learning ground because I I think about this all the time Um, My son is 28 years old I think that that millennial, young millennial generation could be the most important generation in our country's history because they literally have been through 9-11, 2008, and now 2020 in just their young lives. This could be the greatest generation if we could help together for them to think about how these moments that shape them are really for more than just for their own Um, happiness, but literally for the good of what I, as a Christian, what I believe is God wants to do for all of creation. So it is in real time intensity that you are making decisions about learning and shaping that will shape generations. And that's the the paradox of genuine uh, change
0: leadership. So, Todd, I'm curious, going back to, you know, Casey set us up into this pandemic time. So you talked about how um, being teachable is really important um, and an attribute of a uh, tempered, resilient leader. So how do we do this in a pandemic time? Because especially when, um, I mean, yes, anxiety is high, but vulnerability, it's harder in an anxious system to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do we um, do it?
1: Yeah, so one of the one of my favorite uh, articles that I've read in the last during the pandemic was from Ronald Heifetz that he wrote in 2009. He wrote an article called Leadership for a Permanent Crisis. And he was writing about what a disruptive century we've had with 2000 with two, 9/11 and 2008. He had no idea 2020 was coming, right? And what he talked about was the way to think about this is that you have two parts to a crisis. You've got the acute crisis which is like a human body being wheeled into an emergency room. You gotta just make sure it survives. But the wise doctor, as soon as they know that they're out of the woods, will then look at the patient and say, let's talk about what got you here. And now you have to use the energy of that, of that crisis to address the adaptive challenges. But Haifa says, this is when you have, you have to confront the challenges that you've not had the will to confront before. And you, now you hit the organizational reset button, and you go after the legacy issues. And so what I say to, to churches in this moment is, don't waste this crisis. It's not just about surviving. It's about caring for everybody and surviving. But as soon as it's got enough bandwidth to ask any questions, now ask questions about, about thriving. Use this as a time to train, to experiment, to learn, to try things that if you throw them out six months from now, nobody's going to worry about because that happened during the pandemic. You know, this is your moment to rethink. This is a moment to take all your best staff who uh, you are thinking you might have to lay off because we might not be able to have a big children's program or youth program and ask the question, how could we invest in their lives so that they become better leaders 18 months from now, regardless of their position? What would it be like for us to have a staff team or a laity that is no longer about the pro- projects and the programs we used to do, but is about the literally the overall mission? How can we let this become a moment of mentoring and apprenticeships and equipping for the future? That's the way that we ter- make sure that this crisis of the pandemic um, does not keep us stuck in the past, but actually prepares us for the future.
3: Todd, I want to dive into uh, what you said earlier on this um, same topic. You used a sports analogy, and of course, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that as uh, I follow what the NFL is trying to do each year and uh, watching teams that seem like they go through coaches or quarterbacks uh, yearly and can't achieve uh, any success at all, Um and then at the same time, acknowledging that God uh, sometimes takes a generation um, to sort leadership out. Do you have a sense of um, knowing that sometimes pastors and congregations uh, aren't on the same page or it's better or the Spirit's stirring them to separate? Is there, is there an amount of time that's appropriate if things don't seem like they're quite working?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I end the book with a whole question about, so when do you walk away? Because the book is written for leaders, right? So it's written for the leader to think through. When do you walk away? When do you you say, okay, this is no longer an issue of resilience, it's something else. And one of the key principles of adaptive leadership is that for adaptive leadership to work, you have to give the work back to the people. And I always say, to me, the marker of change is when, when the leaders have, done, have gathered people together, have done work, have led the learning, have con- talked about confronting loss. When they keep giving the work back to the people and the people don't want to take up the work, then this becomes the moment for us to begin to ask the Lord, am I done here? Like, like, has this been about my shaping? Do I go someplace else? And that's a, this is a difficult and painful question. You don't get there quickly. I, in my view, I mean, I, you got to realize I'm a guy who had, I had a 10 year, a tenure at one place and a 17 year at another. And I'm now in my seventh year in my, at, at the school. So I'm not a quick uh, turnaround person in that sense. But, but what I do believe is that you do have to ask yourself larger questions about your work and about the work that you've been given as a leader. And if, giving the work back to the people doesn't lead the people to want to take it up and do the work, then it might be that this is a group of people who are are, are, are not ready for the change or are not going to. And we ask God where to take us. Um, it's interesting, is almost everybody I coach, almost every leader I coach gets to this question somewhere along the way. And what's interesting is the folks who really do the work of staying in their own process, Often end up staying with a congregation longer. They get more committed to that transformational work. What's hard is if they haven't done the work of bringing their congregation along and investing in their people. Oftentimes, the the congregation's done. Like I said, the easiest technical solution that most of us in a church think will make our church better is get a new pastor. And why don't we just try a younger model, right? If we just get the younger, cooler pastor, that'll make the difference. And that's usually a Recipe for disaster, but
0: well, Todd, is there anything else that you'd like us to know about your book?
1: Um I think the most important thing about the book to know is the book is meant to be, it's a formational book. It's, it's a published book. It's got a study guide that goes with it. We're developing lots of resources for, for coaching groups and consulting and leading groups to do. It's meant to be a book that leaders take on with mentors or with peers and friends so that they can actually be shaped together. It really is a, you know, the blacksmith metaphor, it's an iron sharpening iron kind of book. And so, um, so what I what I really enjoy the most, and what I care about the most, is how the book opens up conversations for people who want to actually do much deeper work than just read a book, and and that's really what it's about. It's even the work you know the work I do at the uh, the New Church Leadership Initiative at Fuller is built on that. As how can we put all of our resources, I mean we're putting all of our resources, and they're deploying me. I gave up my role as senior vice president to focus on one group of people, which is leaders leading through change, like how can we help church leaders wisely navigate change? And um, and that's because we think it's really that important. So that's the work that I do. So.
3: All right, thank you so much, Todd, for all of your uh, wonderful answers today and for uh, putting together a book that is infinitely more relevant today than I would imagine you even imagined as you were writing it, um, and that uh, I know has stirred up a lot of questions and thought and response just in my mind uh, as we were talking about it. Um, Again, check out uh, Tempered Resilience by Todd Bolsinger. It is available wherever books are sold on November 10th or right around that date, and um, again, as he had uh, said, um, invites you into a deeper conversation and a deeper discernment um, to get as much out of it as you possibly can. Uh, thank you, Rachel and Pat, for uh, your faithful questions as we've discussed uh, this book and this topic. Um before we close, uh, I another plug, you can text CHANGE to 66866 for some more uh, resources about uh, church leadership and uh, how to lead well. For Innovating Church, the Church Innovations Podcast, I am Casey Sugden. For Rachel Stout, Pat Kiefert, again, thank you, Todd. Let us close in prayer. Gracious God. Thank you so much for Todd and for his dedication to strengthening leadership in your church. Guide all of our listeners and all of those who lead your church around the globe to be faithful leaders and give them the resilience to persevere to make it through the wilderness that they find themselves in. Guide us all until we are able to
1: gather again. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.